Amen. 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 God is good, y'all. He's good to us. He doesn't hold the wrongs that we commit against him, against us. But instead, he paid a price that we might be forgiven, that we might find new life, that we might become again what God created us to be in relationship with him. And if there is anything that we as a church can stand on, it is that, that God loves you, that he's a God of grace and of transformation, that he's a God that has a plan for your life, that hasn't thrown out the script because we got it wrong. God is so much better than that. And I'm thankful that Julie shared her story, and I hope that if you've ever wondered, you've ever thought, how can I share my story? I don't have a, a, an extreme story. You know, I, I, I didn't hit rock bottom, so to speak, the way that others hit rock bottom, and then there was some miraculous. No, no, no. You don't have to have a testimony like that to be able to share your story. Because here's the truth, friends, is that no matter what your story is, there's somebody else out there who's had an experience like you. No matter what questions you dealt with, whether they're the really big ones or you feel like they're really small ones, there's somebody whose stumbling block to faith is the very question that you wrestle with. I like to say that God will never waste a hurt. God will never waste a pain. God doesn't cause it, but he will purpose it for the good of others and for his glory. And so if you've not uh, learned or spent time learning how to share your story, I hope you'll go to the event either this week or next week after the services so that you can, is it next week too or just this week? Both today and next week? Just today. Well, I hope that you'll go today, and if you don't go today, then I hope you'll raise enough sting that they'll do it again next week, and then you can go and do it next week. We're in the middle of a series. If I don't know you, there's some faces that are covered up by the mask, and so if I don't know you, my name is Stephen Mackey, and I get to share, uh, just as a member and a part of the Riverside family, I get to, to, to share every few weeks, and this week and next week, uh, I'll be sharing as we continue in our series called Family Matters, Family Matters. Now, if you are like me of a certain generation, you might be thinking about a certain Steve Urkel, and you might have thought of your mind kind of went to a certain sitcom when you saw Family Matters. That was, I was, I'm going to be honest with you, I was kind of hoping that we would kind of rip off some of, their, some of their branding. Maybe we have a walk-up music like their theme song. Anyways, I live in a fantasy world. But nonetheless, we are in this series called Family Matters because we believe that family not just husband and wife, father, mother, son, daughter, aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa, cousin, not just family like blood or by marriage. But we believe that family like forget about me, I love you matters. I think about this. I think about the story of the Good Samaritan when the Pharisees were trying to trip Jesus up. Do you remember? They didn't like the way that Jesus was doing his Jesus thing, loving people, healing people, hanging out with people. And so they tried to trip him up one day, and they said, who is my neighbor? What, what was the scripture say? So you see, he responds with the Shema, love your neighbor as yourself. And they said, well, who's my neighbor? And you remember what he said? It was the one who is in front of you. That's your neighbor. Anyone for whom you are willing to say, forget about me, I love you, that becomes your neighbor, that becomes your family. And we just believe that that really that we would be a people who would trade the forget about you, I love me-ness of selfishness and of sin. And we would trade that for a forget about me, I love you. 
because we are a people of grace. I said it before and I'll say it again. If we as Christians offer the world anything other than grace, we aren't offering them the kingdom of God. But if we try to stand on anything other than grace, we are standing on quicksand and the world will see right through it. They'll see us falling. Why would I want that? If we are known for anything other than grace, then what we are known for is ungrace. There's no gray ground. It's grace or ungrace. And if we are known for ungrace, then we are doing the world a grave disservice. We're doing God a disservice because God is a God of grace. And the one thing that Christians have to offer that no one else does is grace. Forget about me. I love you. And this matters not because just it's, a, it's, a, it's an important foundational theological idea, but it matters because we are going to be wrong. It matters because there are going to be times where people in our family, those who are closest to us, are going to do something that hurts us. But there are going to be people at work or see people in our online communities. There are going to be people who wrong us, and in that moment, we're going to have a choice, grace or ungrace. When we get wronged, the ungrace of our selfishness toughs us. But I believe that the Bible, I believe that Jesus calls us that when we are wronged, remember that grace matters. That forget about me, I love you matters. That we would trade me, myself, and Inus for some Y-O that we would trade the, 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 the yielding what is best for me in this moment for what's best for you. And that's hard, especially when we're wrong. But remember, friends, grace is all that we as Christians have to offer. Grace upon grace. And so today we're going to look and we're going to dive in uh, and we're going to look at three teachings of Jesus, two parables, and then one segment from the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to remind you that as we look at these parables, remember these teaching stories are meant to help us see what God is like. Why does Jesus share teaching story after teaching story? So that we might know more about what the kingdom of God is like. And so as we do this, we're going to walk through just a series of affirmations, of reminders, and I hope that you'll write them down. Because I can promise you that this week somebody will wrong you. And when they do, I want you to be prepared. I want you to get caught off guard and to respond with ungrace. I want you to be prepared that you might respond with grace. You say, why, Mac, why would we do this? Last week, Pastor John told us family matters, that the I love you matters, because God first loved us. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. I wonder if you would commit this week. I'm going to challenge you. Will you memorize that verse this week? Will you remember? I want you to write it. Get, a sharp, get, a, get a, an expo marker. Write it on your mirror. Right? Put a sticky note. Make it the background on your phone. Put it anywhere that you are going to look. And this week, memorize, not just with your mind, but with your heart. 1 John 4 and 19, we love because he first loved us. There's nothing else we can offer, friends. 
This is the gospel. This is the call of Christians. And so this week, when we are wronged, we will love because he first loved us. So number one, I hope you'll write this down. When you wrong me, I will be for you because God is for me. You say, Mac, how do I love like he first loved me? It's when you wrong me, I am going to be for you because God is for me. That's so hard, isn't it? When someone wrongs us, we want to think of all the ways that we can attack you, all the ways that we can prove that you are right, all the ways that we can raise the alarm. I was wrong that I want the world to know about. I'm convinced that at least a couple billion of Facebook's value uh, is found because people just sit there and post about how they were wronged, and then everybody says, oh, yeah, you were wrong, and it's just up, 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 and it's just a little echo chamber. Look at how wrong that was. Oh, you were so wrong. We try to list it up, and what happens is rather than being for the person that wronged us, we end up against them. you imagine if God was against us and we wronged? Where would we be? We would have no hope. We would have nothing to stand on. And yet, when we wrong God, God is for us, not against us. That's good news. And so this week, when you are wronged, I want you to be for the person. Because God is for you. Let's look in Matthew chapter 5. Section from the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to be on the screen. And I'm reading from the message. And sometimes people get, they get flustered and bothered. By that, listen to me. We're going to read from the message today because I want it to disrupt a common teaching. These stories today, they're common. If you've been in church any, any amount of time, you know where we're going. And I want you to hear in a new way. I want it to disrupt the rhythm like a, like a step that isn't the same height, different height steps. You've got to be intentional about the steps that you take. That's why I do this. I want you to Matthew chapter 5 and 38. Here's what Jesus says. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. Someone drags you into court and sues the shirt off of your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, Use the occasion to practice the servant law. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. You know, Jesus is radical. We don't, we don't hear things like this. Oh, you, you, you're going to hit me. Okay, you're going to do this to me. What happens? We beef up. Yep, you do this to me, I'm going to do that to you. Oh, you're going to be against me? Then I'm going to show you just how against you I can be. Let me give you the consequence of wronging me. And Jesus says, you want to follow me. You want to be a people of grace. No more tit-for-tat accounting. You know, the, the math of grace is scandal. The math of grace isn't going to, 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 to create some profit that benefits your bottom line. The mathematics of grace is for those who are wrong. And that we, as God's people, would sit back and go, listen, no more tit for tat. I'm going to be generous to you. I am going to be 
for you even when you wrong me. You remember uh, back maybe in the 90s, maybe early 2000s, back in the day, they had the bracelets, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Do you remember? It, was a, it, it took over, right? It was everywhere. You had the bracelets, and like, yo, if you really loved Jesus, you had a different bracelet to match, different outfits. You were color-coordinated, right? Maybe you had them running up your, your arm, right? Middle schoolers, they had just like a whole sleeve of WWJD. It was everywhere. They had the bracelets, the T-shirts. They even had WWJD bikinis, y'all. I'm going to tell you, like, look, I can tell you what Jesus would do. Jesus wouldn't wear that. He would put more clothes on. That's what Jesus would do with what you are wearing right now. Nonetheless, it was everywhere, and it hit for a bit, and then it kind of, like, disappeared. And the reason it was so popular is that it was so simple. In any situation, what would Jesus do? Go do that. And the reason that it disappeared is because it was so hard to do. I'm not making any, any bones about this. To not live tit for tat will be the hardest thing that you ever do. To be a person of grace and not ungrace will be the hardest, most continual battle you ever fight. But it's what Jesus would do. And the way of Jesus, it's a way of losing. And if you're not okay losing, I don't know that you'll be okay following. Matthew 16, Jesus says, anyone who will seek to save his life will lose it. Anyone who would lose their life will find it. The way of Jesus is different. It's upside down. It's countercultural. It, it, there's, no, there's no framework outside of the kingdom of God that this makes sense. That's why we say, forget about me. I love you. I love you enough to lose. I love you enough to be for you, even when you're against me. Jesus goes on in Matthew verse 5 and verse 43. You're familiar with the old written law. Love your friend. And its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. But I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. Come on. Jesus on a different level. You know what we're quick to do today? We're quick to make people who disagree with us our enemy. And then we're quick to hate them. But the way of Jesus is much different. Can I, be, can I just be 100 with us today? Whether you're online, whether you're right here, get me fire, get me fire. But there are people in our community, when they see the face of Nancy Pelosi, their blood boils. They get filled with hate. She's made in the image of God. Some people, they see the face of Donald Trump and their blood boils. He's made in the image of God. Can't go around making people our enemies. And if they are our enemies, what does Jesus say? Go and love them. Let them bring out the best in you. How many Christians are known for the worst that comes out of them? when they see somebody they disagree with. The gospel is the only hope for the world. And If we let people we disagree with become our enemies, and then we hate them for it, we propagate ungrace, not grace. We're planting seeds of ungrace, not grace. And the Bible calls us to something different. Love your enemy. 
Let them bring out the best in you. If someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. Understand this, friends. You were created by God, the, the, the who you are meant to be, to be a person of grace. Anytime that you are giving out, you are sowing ungrace, you are not living into who you were created to be. That's what sin is. It's a missing the mark. It's, it's, a, it's an archery term that you would take and you would shoot and you would shoot for the bullseye and you would miss it. What is the bullseye? The fullness of who God created you to be. And anytime we are sowing ungrace or hate or selfishness or forget about you, I love me because you wronged me. You missed the mark. But this is what God does. Listen, I'm for you because God was for me first. Here's what God does. He gives his best. The sun to the warm, the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless, good and bad, nice and nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner can do that. In a word, what I am saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives for you. When someone wrongs me, I can be for them because God is for me. That's the way of following is to be a giver of grace. We'll talk about this. But grace is giving what someone doesn't deserve. That's what grace is. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. You haven't earned it, but I'm going to give it to you like you have. I shouldn't, but I'm going to anyways. That's grace. And so when we find ourselves in a place this week, we're memorizing 1 John 4 and 19. I love because he first loved me. When someone wrongs you, how can I be for you? Here's the question I want you to ask. You might want to write this down so that you don't forget the question when you get wrong. How can I be most for you? In this moment where you've wronged me, how can I be the most for you? How can I best help you see Jesus? How can I best give you grace? Here's why I want to pause, and I want to I want to be I want to be very articulate about this. Being for someone doesn't mean allowing them to do anything and everything they want simply because they want. Being for someone, saying, "How can I be the most?" For you does not mean that he has the right to keep hitting you because he got drunk and angry. Being the most for someone gives no one permission to speak down and verbally abuse or emotionally abuse or spiritually abuse another. Being the most for someone does not mean that you give permission to another to devalue the divine in you. Sometimes the thing that I can do that will be the most for you is give you boundaries. 
is tell you that you have to stop here. That I have gone as far as I can go with you. And from here on, it's somebody else's journey to help you get to God. To help you get to a place of healing. Because if I go any further, I'm going to begin to reap pain from hurt that you have done. How can I be the most for you is not a blank check to let someone else do whatever they want. But what it is, is a commitment to being the grace God has asked you to be in that person's life. And the grace that God asked you to be in their life might be different than the grace that God asked me to be in their life. You don't have to be the fullness of grace. Indeed, you can't. We all have a role to play in one another's journey. And it might be that to be the most for someone is to tell them, I can't go any further with you. Until this gets healed, I'm going to have to sit this one out. I'm going to keep praying for you. That's how I'm going to be for you. I'm going to pray that God would do a miracle in your life. That's how I'm going to be the most for you. But I can't keep the day-to-day journey. I hope, that, I hope that you hear the heart in that. When we are wrong, we can be for people because God was first for us. That's what family does. Forget about me. I love you. It matters. Number two, let's write this down. When you wrong me, I won't cancel you because God doesn't cancel me. When you wrong me, I'm not going to cancel you and go, yep, you did that thing. Yep, uh huh. And, and look, I, we live in Texas, okay? We understand this because after all these years, y'all are still Cowboys fans. All right? After all these years, y'all ain't giving up on the Cowboys. They let you down year after year, right? It's been said, right, that, that a true Cowboys fan wants to have the Cowboys quarterback be, a, be an usher at their funeral so they can let him down just one more time. Okay? Listen, y'all understand what it means to not cancel the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, Jason doesn't because he's a bandwagon Patriots fan. But the rest of you understand, okay? <laughs> now, nah, he's, been, he's been faithful since day one, right? Uh, anyway. But somehow, we could stay faithful to a sports team. But the moment someone posts something wrong, you're canceled. Like that brother's not made in the image of God. Like the Bible doesn't call us to avoid meaningless bickering. Use our words to be strong. Listen, Jesus He's not in the business of canceling. Look at a parable. It's a, it's a familiar story. Luke chapter 15. It's a familiar story. How God doesn't cancel. My man, will you throw me my Bible right here? It's right under, yeah, right there. Uh, no, under, there you go. Thank you. I appreciate you. In Luke 15, there are three parables about the persistence I've got, remember, what's the point of a parable? To teach us about the heart of God, the kingdom of God. There are three stories in Luke 15, and they all point back. It's the story of a lost sheep. What does he say? When there's one sheep lost, what will, what will the shepherd, he will leave the 99 to chase after the one, right? Don't let the fact that that song gets played on repeat for like 12 minutes at a time over and over again dilute the power of the scripture from which it comes. 
Jesus would leave the 99 to come after the one. Like, yo, if you were the only one, Jesus would have still come. If, if you would have been the one to welcome him into earth, to betray him to yourself, nail him to the cross, he still would have. Because of the cost for you. The, the, the second story is of a lost coin. That, I mean, if you lose that coin, how many, you're going to chase out, you're going to turn over the, the, the couch, you're going to pull out the, the pillow like you're searching for a contact. You're not like, hey, 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 have you seen my contact anywhere? No, you're down on the ground, you're moving, you're, you're face. He's going to search after you. And the third story is the story of a lost son. But the, the reason I want you to see this is because as I was praying over the scriptures, Luke 15, 1, it, just, it, it, it hit me in a different way. By this time, a lot of men and women doubt, of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. That's the one who surrounded Jesus everywhere. Men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. And the Pharisees and the religious scholars were not pleased. Not pleased at all. And they growled. He takes in sinners and eat meals with them, treating them like old friends. And their grumbling triggered this story. the grumbling of the religious scholars who said, we think that we are in and we don't want anyone else. We're going to close. Isn't it crazy how once we get in, we start closing the wall. We don't want to try to close the door. We don't want anybody else in. Start to raise the standard. Once I want the standard low for me, but I want it high for everybody else. That's what they were doing. And that grumbling triggered Jesus to tell the story, teaching stories, that he would leave the 99 to chase the one. He would go and find the coin and that he... Welcome home, the son. Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. And then Jesus said, There was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, I want right now what is coming to me. Talk about wrong. Father, I wish that you were dead so that I can get the money that I will get when you die. You are no good to me, but for the money I will receive that you earned, that you set aside for me, you are no good to me but for that. I wish you were dead that I could have that money. Sometimes we whitewash parables. They're much more scandalous than I think we understand. And so the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. And there, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything that he had. After he had gone through all of his money, it is this picture. He's in Vegas. He's just letting it go. He's, part, he's doing all of the things that build the resume of his unworthiness. All of the things that have no justification. All of the things that go, yeah, he done lost his mind. And after he did all of that, wasted all that his father had put aside for him, a famine came. And as the famine came, he began to feel it. He signed on with a citizen who was assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. Don't miss it. A Jewish man who went from wealth to poverty to the point that all that he could do was feed someone's pigs as a slave and long to eat the food that they ate. Don't miss it. It wasn't long before he came to his senses. 
And all those farmhands working for my father, he sat down to three meals a day, and here I am starving. I'm going to go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. And he got right up, and he went home to his father. He had a speech prepared. He was ready to lay it out, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Don't you know dad had a moment right there? Dad had a choice. Dad could have sent the servants out and said, close the gate. He's been canceled. He wished I were dead, so I'm going to treat him as if he is. But remember, the purpose of a teaching school is to teach us about the heart of God, about the kingdom of God. And while he was still a far way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out and embraced him and kissed him. Dad, can I talk to you for a minute? Never stop kissing your son. Don't ever stop embracing your son. Don't ever lose such a tenderness with your boy. We, we kiss them and we embrace them until they're about eight, nine. And then we do it again when we get old and they're grown and we're about to die. But there's a lot of years in between. We go, that's just weird. I don't want to ever stop embracing your son. A son needs a father to tell him explicitly that I love you, that I'm proud of you, and I love seeing you be who God Don't ever stop telling them. If your boys play sports, if your daughters play sports, there's only three. This is an aside. It's for free. There's only three things you need to tell them when that game is over. Number one, I love you. Number two, I'm proud of you. And number three, I love watching you play. You don't need to be a coach. You don't need to correct them or critique them. I love you. I'm proud of you. I love watching. Father embraced his son. His son wronged him. He didn't cancel him. He said he embraces him. His son started the speech, Dad, I sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling for his servants. Quick, bring a set of clean clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And they get a prize-winning heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're throwing a party. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead, now alive, given up for lost, and now found. And they begin to have a wonderful time. And the scandalous mathematics was reversed. That he would cancel me, but I didn't cancel you. You're my son. That's what God says to you. And so we can say, you're my brother. You're my sister. I'm not going to cancel you. But we find ourselves in this moment. When someone wrongs you this week and there's that temptation to cancel them, remember, I love because he first loved me. 1 John 4 and 19. So ask this question. What is the best that I can give you right now? I'm tempted to cancel. Write it down. I'm tempted to cancel you. Instead, I'm going to ask a new question. What's the best that I can give you in this moment? Too often we think the best I can give you is justice. I'm going to give you what you deserve. Sometimes we go, no, I'm, 
I'm going to give you mercy. I'm not going to give you what you do deserve. Remember the old game, you play uncle, right? Still play it with your kids, dad. Let them know you got the old man strength, right? You squeeze his hands, right? And then you do this number, right? And you start squeezing real hard. And then whenever someone can't take it anymore, what do they cry out? They cry out, uncle! They cry out for mercy! They say, don't, don't break my hand. I signed up for it. That was the game. But I'm asking you, not, don't give me what I deserve. I lost. I deserve the pain, but I'm asking you not to. It's mercy. Grace. Grace is to give what we don't deserve. Grace is to say, I will give you more than you've earned. What does the prophet Isaiah say? Come and eat, buy with what you can't afford. Drink and be filled. But we we give them what they don't deserve. We be a people of grace. Frederick Buechner is writing about Paul, and you, you, you read the letters of Paul. What does he say over grace and peace? And why does Paul offer grace? Here's what Frederick Buechner said. He said, grace is the best that Paul can wish because grace is the best he himself has ever received. Friends, you'll never receive something better than God's grace. And you can never give. Give it because he first gave it to us. And so when we're tempted to go, nope, me, myself, and I, I want to cancel you, forget about me. I love you. And I'm not going to cancel you because God didn't cancel me. Number one, I will be for you because God is for me. Number two, I won't cancel you because God did not cancel me. And number three, I will forgive you because God forgives Please write it down. I will forgive you because God forgives me. Friends, I want you to know Jesus is serious about forgiveness. That we are the people. We're like hokey pokey about forgiveness. Put your right foot in, put your right foot out, put your right foot in, and you shake it all about. Nobody else did it. We could have, okay. Anyways, y'all could have joined in right there. Ain't got no amens. Ain't got nobody dancing. We're not Baptists. Y'all can get it. Y'all can move a little bit. It's okay. That we hokey pokey around forgiveness. When, it, when we need it, we're real serious about it. But when it's for us to give, we're wish-washy. What's in it for me? What's it going to cost me? And I know. I know that there's some bad hurt. But Jesus about forgiveness. Look at this parable in Matthew chapter 18, beginning of verse 21. At that point, Peter got up the nerve to ask, Master, how many times do I forgive a brother or sister who hurts me? Seven? And you can imagine in Peter's mind that my man is thinking that he is being generous. God, I'm going to forgive this Seven times I'm going to forgive him, thinking he's generous. Boy, man, that's, that's, I mean, it's a narrow path to follow Jesus. Seven, that's a pretty wide margin of forgiveness. The narrow path of God's grace is always wider than you would expect. I'm just convinced 
that the narrow way to follow Jesus is going to have a lot more people who got grace than our selfishness might have needed or might be wanted. Jesus replied in verse 22, seven, ha, hardly. Try 70 times seven. Scandalous Jesus then said, the kingdom of God is like a king who decided to square accounts with his servants. And as he got underway, one servant was brought before him who had run up a debt of $100,000, and he couldn't pay up. So the king ordered the man, along with his wife, children, and goods, to be auctioned off at a slave market. Now, this is a moment where I think the message actually does us a disservice. If you were looking at the Greek, it says 10,000 talents. Maybe you've read, uh, or maybe your Bible says 10,000 talents. Think on this. A talent is 15 years' worth of wages. 10,000 talents is 150,000 years of wages. It's an, infor- it's an unforgivable amount of money. It's a debt that, that there's no logical way that a slave could have actually run up. That's the point. It's beyond ridiculous. It's like when your kid goes, what's the biggest number you can think of? 100 billion, 100 trillion, 1,000 million. The point is, it's a number too big to understand, a debt too big to even be able to pay back. And so verse 26, a poor wretch threw himself at the king's feet and begged, give me a chance, I'll pay it all back. Please give me another chance. He's run out of bullets at this point. He's throwing the gun. He's got nothing left. He's begging, please. Touched by his plea, the king let him off, erasing the debt. Verse 28, the servant was no sooner out of the room when he came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him $10, a laughable amount of money. Maybe the scripture say a denarius. One, uh, one day's wage was a denarius, 100 denarii, days wages. It's, a, it's an amount that can actually be paid back. Laughable compared to the debt that was just forgiven. And he seized him by the throat and demanded, you pay me back now. Poor wretch threw himself down and begged, give me a chance and I'll pay it all back. No different. He ran out of bullets, was throwing the gun. Please, just give me another chance. But he wouldn't do it. He had him arrested put in jail until the debt was paid. And when the other servants saw this going on, they were outraged and brought a detailed report to the king. They saw someone who received grace being an agent of ungrace. There's no truer, there's no damning, more damning charge against a Christian than to be a recipient of grace and an agent of ungrace. And what we're about to see, friends, is that God has no place for that. The king summoned the man and said, You evil servant, I forgave your entire debt when you begged for mercy. Shouldn't you be compelled to be merciful to your fellow servant who asked for mercy? The king was furious and put the screws to the man till he paid back his entire debt. And that's exactly what my Father in heaven is going to do to each one of you who doesn't forgive unconditionally anyone who asks for mercy. 
wasn't a one-hit wonder for Jesus. This wasn't a one-off teaching. Jesus, in the teaching his disciples how to pray, do you remember in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, we remember that. Give us this day our daily bread. We love to eat. We remember that. But do you remember verse 12? And forgive us our debts as. As we forgive those who sin against us. As we forgive our debtors, forgive me. God, I want, that's the prayer Jesus teaches his followers, his apprentices to pray. The measure to which God will forgive you is the measure to which you forgive. Jesus goes on in verse 14 of Matthew 6. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you. Jesus' experience about forgiveness. There is no room in the kingdom of God for an agent of ungrace. He said, you are a people of grace. And so when you are wronged, you forgive because I first forgave you. Here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, to be Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable. What more can we offer the world? If we offer anything less than this, we're offering them but a shadow. We would give grace. Say, forget about me. I love you. And listen, forgiveness is not easy. It's not something that we can rush through to try to wash why and go, well, I have to forgive, so I better forgive. It's much more transformative. It's, it's much more, it's, it's not fast food. It's a multi-course meal. And I don't want you to be discouraged if you got to sit and you got to go, look, I have to walk a process of forgiving. Because for some of us, like dad has hurt you so bad, the best that you can do right now is to say, God, I am open to forgiving my father. Or maybe I will consider forgiving my father. That's step number one. But listen, we all have a next step to take. And we, the, the call of God is to keep walking the journey of forgiveness so that we can offer it. And look, it, you forgive one person, it heals two people. When you forgive someone of the wrong they did to you, it heals you and them. That's why we must be agents of grace. I'm going to give you a practical tool as we close this morning. One of the things that can be hard is that we find ourselves going, I want to forgive, but like there's just, it's just not happening. Something's not right. Can I encourage you to ask the question, what do I need to give you forgiveness? Like what's in me? What language do I need to speak to be able to give Forgiveness and accept an apology. Gary Chapman, you might know him, from the five love languages. He writes and he talks about how there are different languages that people speak to receive love. 
There's a second writing that Chapman has done that's less known. It's called the Five Languages of Apology. And that just like people speak different languages to receive love, people speak different languages to receive an apology. And, and the five languages are one, expressing regret. Two, accepting responsibility. Do we have a slide for this? Maybe not. It's okay. Expressing regret. So we need somebody to say, I'm sorry. Like to, to, for me to hear your apology, I need you to say, I'm sorry. And if you express regret, then that's the language that I speak. A second language is accepting responsibility. That if you wrong me, I need you to own up to it. I need you to own it and go, yep, that was me. I'm not going to make any excuses. I'm not going to point the finger at anybody. That was on me. That's my, that's my, by the way, that's my language of apology. I need somebody to accept responsibility. Right? That's how I hear it. Number three is to make restitution. In other words, to say, what can I do to make it right? You know, I made something wrong for you. How can I, how, what can I do? Right? Can, I, can I take a class? Can I go to counseling? What can I do to make it right? And some people need to see an action. Go, I need, I need the, 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 the leisure to move. Four is, is genuinely repenting. And going, look, I'm going to turn from this, and you're going to see how I was doing this, but I'm not doing that anymore. I was drinking, and it was making me angry, and I was a drunkard. Now I've turned from that, and I don't touch the stuff anymore. So repentance. Number five is just requesting forgiveness. Some people just need to hear you ask for their forgiveness. Here's why I bring these up. Because when we know this about ourselves, it will make it easier for us to be for that person when they wrong us. It'll make it easier for us to go, here's how I can help them speak a language. Here's how I can speak a language that my heart is going to understand. Here's how, I, rather than canceling you because you just keep speaking the wrong language, instead I can, I can communicate in a way that helps me be the most best how I can give forgiveness. And all of this, it only makes sense if you're a person of grace. If Jesus isn't the boss of your life, what we've talked about for the last 45-ish minutes, give or take seven, what we've talked about is bonkers. Is foolishness. What did Paul say? The cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. If you are a person of grace, a recipient of God's great love, when some 2,000 years ago, Christ, the Word, put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood and dwelt among us, lived without sin, was always faithful to the will of the Father, even to the point of death, where his very best friends betrayed him, turned him over for a few pieces of silver. He was sent through a series of monkey court trials where person after person told lie after lie about him. He was mocked and beaten and bruised. He was beat beyond recognition of a man uh, and then made to carry a cross was cut from a tree that he caused to grow up, a hill that he formed to a place called Golgotha. By the very people who 
came to save us. He was nailed to a cross. As he was nailed there, he hung not as a passive victim, but as an active redeemer, as an agent of grace. For what did he say in his final words as he hung there like a common criminal? He cried out, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. That when he was wronged, he was for them. That when they tried to cancel him, he didn't cancel them. That when, he, when they wronged him to the point of death, he forgave. And then in complete control, he gave his life. Was dead and buried in a borrowed tomb and three days later was resurrected from the dead, proving that God wins. That grace is what defeats evil in death. Made good on his offer. That if anyone, regardless of age or stage or status in life, that if anyone would receive him, he would give them his grace, the forgiveness of sin, the promise of life eternal, of a purpose in this life, a power to live it out in a place in his family, not because we had earned it. Sin would abound, his grace would abound even more. Friends, we are people of grace. Let us live that way. When we are wrong, family matters. Grace 